0: What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine.
1: Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and I'm speaking today with two distinguished leaders in the arts in Maine, David Hopkins, chair of the Maine Arts Commission, and David Greenham, commission's executive director. We have two Davids for this broadcast. Welcome to you both. I always begin with an existential query. Who who are you? And where, where do you come from? And how did you find your, your way to Maine? David Hopkins, you want to begin?
0: Well, I was born right here in Maine at oh. Eastern Maine General Hospital. And two days later, I took the ferry from Rockland out to North Haven. And that's where I grew up. And it has always been Um, in my heart and soul, North Haven. And uh, even though I spent 36 years in New York City working there, I was drawn back to my birthplace, and here I have sat for 12 years.
2: Happy to be
1: here. And David Greenham?
2: Uh, I was born in Rochester, New York. Went to school at Syracuse and uh, came to Maine with a group of friends, in uh, 1985, to start a theater company, which we started on Vinyl Haven Island, and we weren't even content to to start an in town on Vinyl Haven Island. We started all the way on the other end of the island, next to Brown's Head Lighthouse, which you go by. The closest way to go by that is on your way to North Haven. Uh, through the thoroughfare and uh, and the theater Brownshead repertory theater was was rooted in creating theater in maine and we uh, rehearsed on the island and then traveled all over the state and and off we went. are you an actor and playwright I am I am uh, probably at this point a reluctant actor I am a playwright I direct I've certainly produced,
1: I, I first met David Hopkins in New York City far too many years ago, uh, and we did a deal, the art of the deal, <laughs> and uh, it was really quite, quite wonderful. It was so serendipitous, and it was so easy. Um, the, the, so all I can tell you uh, is that uh, he was a, an amenable partner, and we both benefited from, from, from it greatly, but he was a retailer and now he's a gallery keeper. He is a taste maker, uh, and he uh, has operated that gallery in that home port of North Haven for now, what, 10, 12 years, and has three spaces and, and a gift shop, and has become a kind of arts and, uh, entrepreneur as much as an arts administrator. David Hopkins, how did you get to the Maine Art
0: Commission? Circuitously, I uh, left the Metropolitan Museum in 2010. And uh, at that point, I was uh, serving on the board at the Farnsworth Museum um, and stayed on that board for a number of years. Um, And then I moved over um, and was invited to be a commissioner uh, for the Maine State Museum. And I was on that commission for a number of years. And then uh, the governor asked if I would be interested in joining joining the Maine Arts Commission. And um, that was uh, about two and a half years ago, or a little bit longer. And um, I attended my first meeting, uh, which was the last in-person meeting that we had uh, because COVID hit just at that point. And then as David Greenham was in, the chair position uh, he moved over to the executive director, and uh, it seemed appropriate for me to um, uh, take over the chair and The governor agreed very happy to hear
1: well it's all very cozy and interlocking directorate uh, David Greenham, how did you get there? How did you become chair and a member of the commission?
2: Well, I had been a member of the commission back oh in the early Two thousands ninety nine maybe or two thousand and uh, for a little bit and I have I've actually been on commission panels and involved with the commission and in fact even was hired by the commission as a contractor a few times in the in the eighties and nineties so when they came looking and the governor was elected my name came up to join the commission and then. I was, before I had even joined the commission, was offered the chair. They were looking for a new chair. And I've been involved with the arts in Maine for a long time, really understood the history of the commission as well, and so was asked to be the chair. And then when there was a transition of leadership and the question about how how are we going to proceed came up, we really felt very strongly that we needed to figure out an interim process of some sort. And... Unbeknownst to me, several people spoke with uh, the governor and uh, suggested that maybe I should do that job. I, at the time, was working for the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine and uh, was the assistant director there. And I wouldn't have done it, except for that we were able to work out a plan with the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine where it wouldn't negatively affect them that they had a, a transition plan in place. So I accepted the position for for up to two years, and we're now talking about moving beyond that because the work's still not done.
1: (laughs) When I look at your your resumes, you're both amazingly experienced in uh, not only administration, but as board members. Uh, And being a board member is a responsibility in arts organizations. It's true everywhere. uh, But the arts... Organizations typically underfunded and reliant so heavily on on charitable contributions. Uh, being on the board and understanding how uh, the organization works, not confusing the mission, not getting too deep in the weeds, but at the same time, advocating and making sure that fiduciary responsibilities and the mission is advanced. It really is an important perspective, it seems to me, on as we as we talk about. The administration of the arts going forward—it's an interlo- it's talking about interlocking ne- network. It is a community of volunteers who are constantly engaged in the advancement of the arts in Maine. Do you do anything with regard to grants for trustee training and uh, things like that?
2: We don't have grants for trustee training, but we actually there there are plenty of opportunities for trustee training and in fact we're just embarking next month on a uh, project in partnership with the Maine Alliance for Nonprofits and at the center of the Maine Alliance for Nonprofits is is their work with nonprofit organizations and their governance systems and their board so there there is quite a bit in the state and and nationally there's all kinds of resources to assist with board training. But I think you're, you're absolutely right. This, the role of a board member, and I, I would go beyond just the arts I, on any nonprofit, is really critical in making sure that the nonprofit is uh, successful in its mission and, and has a clear focus, but also has the resources to uh, pursue that mission. Well, let's talk about the commission itself. What is
1: its stated purpose and, and how does it work? How does it fulfill its
2: mission? The mission itself is that the, the Maine Arts Commission uh, shall encourage and stimulate public interest and participation in the cultural heritage and cultural programs of our state, shall expand the arts cultural resources and shall encourage and assist freedom of artistic expression for the well-being of the arts to meet the needs and aspirations of persons in all of the parts of Maine. So we begin with an incredible lofty mission that our funding in reality can in no way... (laughs) accomplish the the broad, broad mission of the arts in Maine and, and writ large culture. There are, of course, other cultural agencies in the state. And so we also work in partnership with them to accomplish these sorts of goals. But our focus is primarily about encouraging participation in and appreciation of and experiencing the arts in Maine. So as a
1: commissioner, are you engaged in defining the programs, the grant programs? Clearly, you're, you supervise the awards, you monitor the finances, but I'm curious how, um, how the, the internal conversations take place amongst the commissioners and how much freedom do you have? Lofty mission uh, can go in many, many different directions.
0: Well, right now, we're working on a strategic plan, for the next five years. And the commissioners and the staff have been engaged with community conversations with about 20 different communities around the state. And so at this point, we have uh, completed a good number of those conversations and we're working on finalizing the strategic plan. And There's good discussion amongst the commissioners and the staff on this. David, do you wanna to add to that?
2: Yeah, well, I would just say there's, there's actually three legs to that critical stool and that's the you know, the commission members who are all very well-meaning and experienced volunteers and the paid professional staff. And then of course, the field of, uh, of practitioners, both uh, individual artists and organizations. And so we're involving everyone that we can in these conversations and, uh, and trying to come up with a focus for the next five years. And essentially, we've focused on four areas. One is, is service, and, uh, and the Arts Commission needs to, by its very nature, be a service organization. So that's, that's service to the field and also service to people who are in, interacting with the arts in any way. And then the next, the second one is connections. And so our job is to work to make sure that, that folks in the field connect with each other and are able to share information and resources. And I think most importantly, as we move forward, are able to partner, are able to work together uh, and find their common common work. And then approximately a third of our financial activity is grant making. And so the third section is is investing. And that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we face on a regular basis is that there is a finite amount of money. In our case, it's about three hundred fifty dollars to $400,000 every year. And of course, we have to figure out what would be the best way to share that money to to provide funding to the field to ensure all of the different requirements that we that we have put upon ourselves for that funding with the help of designations from the the commission members over the years but the the goals obviously are geographic distribution distribution between rural and more urban arts, and of course, all of the various uh, diversity needs that exist in our state. And so it's a challenging piece. And then finally, the the fourth is one, and in, in a way, it's it's what you touched on when you asked about training for board members of different organizations, and that's a, a, a focus on advancing. How do we move the arts, and the organizations and the individual artists, and main itself forward from this place we are? And what are the priorities we want to focus on? So, I've been on
1: far too many strategic planning committees. Uh, and my experience, somewhat cynically, is that they are often simply exercises that go back, re articulate, and re justify what's been done before that there's a kind of innate conservatism and inertia that's built into organizations. And I would think that the commission would have the same challenges. Do you think that your your strategic planning is going to be radically different than what you've already been doing for the last 10 years?
2: Oh, it has to be. Why? Why it, does it have to be? Because we have been through a life-changing experience for all of us of the pandemic, where everything was shut down for two years, and as you know, I'm sure, the pandemic affected the arts on about the first day and affected the arts through the entire time where arts are just now struggling to come back because part of the experience of so much of the arts is that people experience them together in a place. And getting together in a place is still very challenging. So let's come back to that. Um, We will come back. We we have to come back to that. But my point is that there is a new need to focus on how we do our work. There's another piece of that. And you alluded to it earlier, actually, uh, with regard to funding. And we know that many, many organizations have operated on the goodwill and good nature of both its uh, volunteer staff and its underpaid staff. And the economy has changed in a way where not only is underpaid staff less available, but many young workers, because of college debt or because of other financial challenges, including, you know, the need for housing, are not simply able to afford to do this work anymore. And that's going to change much of the structure of cultural organizations.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, um, I'm going to have some opinions here. They're my own. I'm not speaking for you. You can, you can duck them or you can agree with them as you like. Uh, $350,000 for a grant program for the state of Maine is, in my opinion, embarrassing.
2: It is- We don't make that number. <laughs> the, that, the, I understand. The that. legislature that's of the that. state of Maine makes that number. My,
1: my, that's my point. And what I uh, have suggested that we talk about is the uh, trying to understand that the collective value of the creative economy in this state is enormous. And when we talk about the economic vitality of the state, we talk about fishing and tourism, and that's and now somewhat about um, you know, the academy, the universities, and somewhat about these new research organizations in Portland and elsewhere, in, in sort of a, a kind of new 21st century industry point of view. But the arts never get mentioned. If you are just joining us, this is conversations from the Pointed Furs a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine broadcast on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and I'm speaking today with two distinguished leaders in the arts in Maine, David Hopkins, chair of the Maine arts commission and David Greenham, commission's executive director. And when you look at each one of those other things, they are inextricably linked in one way or another to creativity. They drive tourism. Uh, They are subject of the arts. People move here and have their, their advanced corporations because of the quality of life that's evinced by the creativity of the community. And to my view, that is so myopic Uh, that it is unconscionable, that we are ignoring what in this next time is going to be a hugely powerful part of what I'm going to call vitality, but it can be measured by economic factors. You could make a calculation and you could see that, the kind of investment that the state puts into the fisheries or the state puts into manufacturing and corporate relocation incentives and economic development, the amount of money that they're putting into tourism and marketing outside of the state, all of that's great. But the fact is that the other part is, to my way of thinking, invisible and uh, almost irresponsibly underfinanced. Well,
2: i you may be speaking to the choir here.
1: (laughs) Well, like, all right, so uh, let's just not put you any further on the spot. Talk about how the budget
2: is developed. It's developed in the legislature. It's developed, it's, we have, we have some control of some of the funding, but we don't have all control of all of the funding. And half, half of our funding comes from the state and half of the funding comes from the federal government, from the NEA.
1: Right. You have federal money that is a a pass-through grant that's theoretically allocated pro rata to the states, and then you have the state legislature's um, budgetary uh, authorization. Can you describe the process of how that works? how does the arts commission's budget get
2: developed through the legislative process it's set the way things are set up it's mostly it's mostly in the process all all the time we have a few opportunities every biennium to make some recommendations for adjustments in the budget and and they may or may not go forward. And over the years, there have been, there have been requests for additional funding or, or different kinds of initiatives. And, and we continue to, to do that work as any, any state agency does. And sometimes the legislature brings that work forward. Sometimes the governor includes that, that kind of work in, in the governor budget. And sometimes the work gets included in the, in the state budget, and then in the process of reconciliation, there are, uh, you know, there are things that get through and things that do not. Let's take the environment, for example.
1: The budget for the environment for all the various departments that pertain to environmental regulation and, and conservation and all the rest of it, there are many organizations that are heavily engaged in lobbying and presenting additions to the budget for consideration by the legislators.
2: Is there an advocacy movement in Maine for the arts? Not formally developed. I am a registered lobbyist, and I can lobby. Um, But other than that, none of the staff can lobby. And, And as we know, most of the lobbyists that exist are paid for by outside groups. They cannot be paid for by state state funding or federal funding. So as a result, there, there hasn't been in many, many years a formal arts lobbying group. And in fact, I would say that in some years, and it's been a long time since the arts have really spoken with one voice about much of anything. And I think that part of the process of covid actually helped some individuals get together and and think about that issue specifically and there's a group that's emerging called the cultural alliance of maine that includes culture with a capital c and i think that part of the centerpiece of the cultural alliance of maine is going to be a focus on how how do we advocate is there a
1: state? Uh, is there a legislative committee? Are there legislators who carry the
2: torch? There are. There are always, of course, there are always legislators who. Who I mean, certainly the vast majority of the legislature supports culture in Maine. I I, I think that's not any question at all. Um, our legislature, because of the nature of the way it's made up and the term lim and term limits. Means that there's there's very little institutional memory within our state, so it's it's a constant effort of making new friends. Right.
1: I want to come back to this creative economy sure. idea. Um, we may be moving on in, in a post-COVID era to a, a new sense of what the arts mean and matter, how it matters. We may have a, some new progressive abstraction that we want to embrace. But the conviction that, that is in play often has to do with investment and return on investment. And my argument is, my opinion is, that that the investment and return on investment in the arts economy in Maine is, is deficient. And that if we were able to, to essentially monetize it, I know that seems crass, but if we were to monetize it and to demonstrate to the legislature that by funding it more, by essentially allowing for expansion, the grade of return would be would be that much greater as well, would be correspondently profitable, and at the same time would enhance the reputation of the state of Maine as a place for young people or retirees or climate refugees, whoever they may be, to migrate here for, for the quality of life, uh, for the spirit of Maine. And the spirit of Maine isn't just uh, fisheries and it's it's not just tourism. Those are those are kind of functionalities of it. So I guess my argument is, is that the that artists collectively tend to um, have a certain kind of righteousness about the value of their work, but they don't collectivize uh, and they don't necessarily advocate uh, that well for themselves. Uh, well, I, I...
2: I, I'm just going to interrupt you, Peter, because I'm going to say a, a few times here in this conversation, you've stated a belief of, of what artists are or what artists do or what artists think. And artists are individuals, just like everybody else is an individual. And there, yes, there are certainly some artists who have the sorts of feelings about it that you do, that you that you indicate, but there are also artists who are who, who the art just simply springs from them and they are not they don't even think about these bigger issues of, of state or federal funding of the arts. And, and so it's very difficult. But I would say I would say this with regard to the creative economy concept, and that is, in my view, David Hopkins and Hopkins Wharf, are a wonderful example of the ideal kind of situation of a creative economy. And that livelihood, the art livelihood that occurs on North Haven Island or in other, some other communities, I think Rockland's rebirth has been rooted in, in some creative economy issues. David, do you wanna talk about a little bit about how that works in your view?
0: I think that one of the things that we're not talking about is the history of uh, makers here in Maine. And uh, I think that it's not just the artists that we think of, but it's the boat builders, the stonemasons, the older technologies that you're now talking about, the future technologies being funded And uh, those older technologies really created incredibly beautiful things. And um, I think we need to reach out to the world and share more about our past and share more about the creativity that has occurred here over the last five, 10,000 years. Just looking at some of the artifacts that were left at the Turner Farm site, archaeological dig that is now housed at the Maine State Museum, to see what was being made and tools that were being used and things that were being created over the past 5,000 years here are just incredible and they're beautiful. And I think we need to try to expand people's awareness of what art actually is. Art is a much greater thing than just painting or sculpture or music or dance or poetry. It's all-encompassing. And I think that that's why so many of us are attracted to be here in Maine and respond to the environment and to appreciate and enjoy the people here uh, that are creative spirits. So. I don't disagree with you, Peter. Uh, We need to get more lobbying done, we need to get more funding done, but we also have to realize that we are where we are today and the finances that have been available to get us through the last two years have been extraordinary. And I, I just don't see more money forthcoming either through the state or the federal government at this time, to do what I would like or hope that we could do. So I think we need to look outside how we've done things in the past and reach to uh, some of the companies and corporations here in Maine to help them engage in the arts and see if they could assist
1: in Can. can you accept those kinds of donations sponsorship monies for the
2: commission we it it, we can we can work out some of that but we there's also there's also some other ways to to do that i'm not i'm not entirely sure that the extra funding that we need to go to the arts in maine has to come through the Maine arts commission right Uh, i would just as soon have the department of economic and community development have a an arts budget as well or department of transportation have an arts budget for public art or the department of labor have a budget for creative workers or you know i think that that it's about i think i think you're you're right on one level it's not so much as I, as I, as i've been saying recently this isn't about the fish it's about the water and we need to change the water and 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 we need to make the pool bigger and we need to have more resources coming to the arts and have the arts also be understood for the role that it plays, not only economically in the state of Maine, but socially, historically, and in this role of of creative problem solving. And we have many, many, many challenges in our state that really are going to require creative problem solving I think we're headed in a in a in a great direction in
1: terms of the conversation. We have evidence though already that so in other states in other cities and other towns, where arts revitalization has essentially sparked uh, the revitalization of of downtowns, artists moving into lesser areas create vitality and create real estate value, sometimes to the detriment of actually the artists having to move out and not being able to afford it anymore. But the point is that that imagination applied can be tactically engaged. Mm -hmm. And it's naive to just say that the Department of Labor or the Department of Economic Development is just going to keep doing it the way they always have when there is this resource that's available. I think the same thing is true for the indigenous arts, the revival of indigenous arts in Maine is growing, and the history of that, as David Hopkins points out, is magnificent. The work that was done by Wabanaki artists uh, etc. I mean, in some ways, that one thing was part of, of some of the restification. The resticators came here. Did they come to Bar Harbor? They came here for the ocean and for the natural, the natural areas. They also came to um, trade. with native makers. Uh, And it was considered a valuable exchange between this and that. And I just say to myself, it's because we haven't been able to inject the consciousness of making and solving into the bureaucracies and into the legislature. And we haven't had necessarily the strongest leaders to do that in order to articulate this uh, as a strategy for the future. I think that's where we're coming back to. And, and David, David Greenham, I agree with you. As we come out of COVID, there is an argument for transformational change. There is absolutely no reason why we have to go back and do it the way we did it before. Mm-hmm. And we're going to learn that in tourism and we're going to learn that in fisheries and we're going to learn that in many, many other aspects of the main economy. And we ought you. to have the arts as part of that effort to revitalize the state and to reevoke and, and magnify this, this spirit that has been essential to our past.
0: Well, I think that um, it's been fascinating to watch what Portland has done through their um, Creative Portland group, uh, headed by uh, Dinah uh, Minett, who's doing a great job invigorating the arts in Portland and so many. Wonderful things there are happening, such as Indigo Arts and the uh, many other organizations that are involved in Portland, is a great example. Also in Rockland, Rockland is doing uh, tremendous things to work on the creative economy.
2: Well,
1: and Bangor, Bangor, downtown Bangor is a a possibility, a perfect example of of where artists, I think, could, could make a huge contribution to the. To to the revitalization of that town, uh, you mentioned Indigo Arts. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that organization? Um, quite remarkable.
2: True, David. You want
1: to? You go ahead, David.
2: Uh, Indigo Arts is an organization that that is run by Daniel and Marcia Minter, and is is a wonderful leader in uh, black arts and uh, black and brown arts in. In the state of Maine, they are the ultimate partner uh, organization and are partnering all the time with all kinds of groups. Uh, I just had the, the privilege of, of heading down to their, their wonderful, beautiful Blackbird Book Festival that, that provides free books for, uh, that are created for and by uh, BIPOC writers and, and illustrators. And provides books for all kinds of young people, and it expanded tremendously. In fact, they think there was a Rockland event and uh, also uh, one in Lewiston, as well as being in Portland this year. And it's just growing. But really, Marcia and Daniel are are the heartbeat of that work, and also are just genuinely dedicated individuals. They're they it's it's an honor to know them both. Um, but I will also say this, Peter. When you, you you mentioned earlier about the the revival of of indigenous art, and um, and I think what what's important for us to remember is that indigenous art hasn't had a revival. Right. In and and the work that that Indigo Arts is doing and the and the kinds of uh, arts that are that are now coming out of Millbridge with a with a Latino community that is there and and all of the other arts that we're they're seeing the, the the work that came from the Somali Bantu community in the Lewiston area those are all rooted in in things that that predate our country and the difference is not that they've been revived, but that we are actually seeing them; they were invisible because we weren't looking. But they have existed the whole time, and it's such a if you you know one of the one of the great things about Daniel Minter when you talk to Daniel Minter, especially being on Zooms during during this COVID, Daniel was always preoccupied on the Zooms, and uh, finally in meetings. We started demanding that he show us what he's preoccupied with. And it was always making a carving. And uh, he just is, is, is always carving. And, you know, there are some people, and obviously there are white artists too, but there are people for whom art flows through their veins. And finally, we're starting to see that and respect that and celebrate that. It's long, long overdue. I
1: stand corrected. You're absolutely right. It's always been there. Uh, The idea that we have ignored it or not seen it is to the point. If you are just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at PointedFurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal. And I'm speaking today with two distinguished leaders in the arts in Maine, David Hopkins, Chair of the Maine Arts Commission, and David Greenham, the Commission's Executive Director. I guess what I was headed to, and you have expanded on, is the all the new cultural inf- influences that are coming into the state through refugees or internal or external migrations to be welcomed for that same spirit and so, for that creativity. I mean, uh, it, it's um uh, it's an opportunity that is, I think, part of the the post-COVID world mm. is that we become a place where that imagination is welcomed, and that diversity is welcomed. Talk about your ideas, though, about what ne- is going to happen next. What comes next out of this crisis, this experience? That we're all aware of some of the negatives, but what are the positives that you envision uh, in the arts?
2: For me, I think that the I think that COVID actually did provide an opportunity for us to be a little more reflective, to do a little more taking stock. Absolutely, creators did, and there are is all kinds of work interesting work in the pipeline. I'm sure, David, you're seeing that in visual arts, where artists have looked at an entirely different style of work or an entirely different point of view of work. The the opportunity for some time, whether we liked it or not, or whether it was the right way to achieve time or not, and I, I don't think it was because COVID was terrible, but COVID did force us all to sit and take stock a little bit. And we're a a society or we've learned to be a society that's always connected to our electronics or always, you know, when you think about the number of television channels we have to choose from compared to when we grew up, (laughs) it's like absurd. And uh, people had time. And I think that the arts especially and our cultural life really flourishes in both time and times where we have time and times where we have challenges. And I think we're in one of those places right now.
1: Well, I totally agree. I, my, my personal experience was it was a, a year and a half, two years of intense productivity. There was nothing else to do but work and to, and to be creative. Uh, and to enjoy the place and the people that you were with and you, you could you could be with. My heart went out to um, artists, but musicians, for example, who have to tour. And the Zoom concert, just as much as and hard as they tried, it just wasn't the same. And when uh, my son's a musician, I've asked him about it, and he said, you know, I'm now back touring. And he said the emotional realization of the joy and the understanding of why I do this is palpable when, you st- when I stand up in front of a live audience. And I'm sure that's true with actors. And I'm sure that's true with painters. And I'm sure that's true with anyone who suddenly has a wider uh, community of access uh, where their work is then at least available to be perceived and understood and uh, be available. In, in, in a personal one-on-one way. I mean, I think that's how people buy art. It's a one-on-one transaction. And so if there's a way that out of this we can learn that lesson and build structures or opportunities that uh, that could change it and improve it and uh, amplify it in some dramatic way, I think the state and our neighborhoods and our community would benefit
0: I think the last two years really um, allowed people to have a very blunt punctuation point, a major period where things stopped. Mm -hmm. And there was time for reflection. Uh, One needed to have compassion. I know Creative Portland had a, a Zoom meeting with all of the Artists in and around Portland, uh, I think maybe about six to eight months after everything closed down. And just being able to, I mean, sit in my um, lovely little space on North Haven, but to hear um, how musicians uh, and people who uh, relied on playing their music once or twice a week to make ends meet no longer had the freedom to be able to do that, and how places like Indigo Arts actually reached out and provided space for uh, people to be interns and to actually feel as though there's this one woman who, who just said that she had never felt so comfortable in a space as she did at Indigo Arts. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was one of the most important and clarifying points to the whole COVID period is that we really needed to reflect on what's happening to all of us. It's not just, it it was a huge deal. Uh, But now if you look uh, around, the state of Maine has been a welcoming state for the arts. For many years, they've had, the Skowhegan School has had artists come every year. The School, And now we have Monson, and I don't know how many people in um, Maine actually know what's happening up in Monson, but it's an incredible place, and uh, the Lieber Foundation has done a great deal up there. And they're making use of the talents uh, outside the state at MIT, Harvard, and RISD, uh, working out Having some students from those organizations come up to Monson and, and explore with young minds, young creativity, not necessarily in the arts, but how the North Woods can be revitalized, uh, not by making uh, heavy industry, but other uh, things that could work. So it's very exciting, I think, what's going on here in the state.
1: There are also little examples out there. For example, uh, some families, uh, Porter family, for example, have had artist residencies on their islands in the summer for many, many years. Uh, you have something as remarkable as the exhibits on Monhegan every summer, which are just astonishingly good. You have uh, where we are right here. Uh, uh, two fellows who came in here and they they've created they didn't build an airbnb in the back they built a little gallery and it's not for profit it's for display it's for Mm -hmm. opportunity and they have they're putting on shows and of residencies and they provide residencies for artists to come and enjoy this place as a creative space so it's lots of little things another example is uh, what's happening this very weekend uh, with the literary arts the, the the statewide literary festival which is organized by artists. It's organized by writers. I, I look at it and I just it makes my heart sore because suddenly we're just not sitting off in our little studios complaining. We're actually getting together and offering workshops and offering um, opportunities to each other and discussing how do we self-publish collectively and how, how do we take our creativity into our own hands? We make things, but then we also need to make the systems that make those uh, enhances the value of those things.
2: I think I'm very also, optimistic, frankly. Also, we, we can't forget the the incredible growth of the main College of Art and Design and uh, the uh, photographic workshops in Rockport and college. and uh, Wooden Boat School? Yeah, and um, also, of course, the the amazing things that are happening at Colby and the Museum of Art there, and then this plan in Portland, the the blueprint plan from the uh, Portland Museum of Art for a hundred million dollar building that will be not only a gallery, but also a gathering and creative kind of maker space right in the heart of Portland. Right. We're gonna run out of time.
1: If you had one wish, one thing that you could do with a snap of your fingers uh, to make and advance this change in some energetic way, what what might it be?
0: I um, feel as though when I thought, "What am I going to do with the rest of my life?" and there weren't a lot of options for me here in Maine, and so I uh, sought things elsewhere. and I actually enjoyed very much what I did in New York, but I would have liked to have had opportunities, more opportunities for me here. And I think that the one thing I'd love to be able to snap my fingers is to uh, make greater opportunities for us to have a place for the youth of Maine to stay here and be engaged and invest in their foundations and building A new world for them to live in
1: uh the opportunity for arts in the schools i mean some school in cedric has an arts teacher and suddenly the the school's alive it really makes a huge difference in terms of the spirit and the feeling of the school Um, and you know it only takes
0: one person to be a tremendous influence or mentor right and i was very fortunate to have a number of different mentors and I think that all of us need to encourage one another to mentor the youth and get them engaged and uh, help them see the possibilities of their own future.
2: I, I do think David's point about housing is is a critical one. It's a It's a critical one for everything that we're doing, but particularly for how we're going to continue to function as a state where the average age is creeping up and, and the people who are older citizens in Maine are also going to need those services that help them continue to be as dynamic and important a group as they are now. I have two things that I would wish I could do instantly. One, one would be to have a statewide, a robust, well funded, but also well-supported and connected program of public art in our state. And the other one would be to have a robust program of investment in our infrastructure in the state. For example, the many, many facilities in our state that are in desperate need of of repair and upgrade, especially in the face of, of COVID. And I, I, I will say, you know, when we were talking about funding earlier, the Maine Arts Commission through ARPA and um and other funds, we were able to award about an extra million dollars in funding for organizations and individuals, uh, and, and frankly it 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 scratched the surface of the need. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, gentlemen, uh, have we solved the problems of the world?
2: (laughs) Well, here's, can I leave you with a a thing? Sure. I, I want to read you this quote about culture. They are a driver of innovation, a source of creative skills with strong backward and forward linkages in the economy and act as a magnet that helps drive growth in other sectors, such as tourism, Beyond their economic impacts, they also have significant social impacts from supporting health and well-being to promoting social inclusion and local social capital. The people who are saying that is the G20, the 20 most successful economies in the world, and that's their report on culture and the arts. And I think that if we center ourselves on this idea that the arts is not only an economic driver, but also a social impact opportunity and supporting our health and well-being, we'll begin to get a better understanding of the breadth and depth and value and importance of the arts in our state. Very well put. We should submit it
1: uh, as testimony <laughs> to the budget it, to the budget committee and the governor.
2: It it uh, has been I shared suppose. with them already.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Open your minds. We have a future to build. Uh, thank you both. Always thank fun. you so much. Yeah, great. Um, uh, and I, I I I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but. Uh, yep. Great. nobody seemed to mind so that's all <laughs> that's all great we'll circulate this around and uh, and let's hope we've done some good today i that's the whole point of this uh, exercise is to communicate and advocate for the spirit of Maine thanks Perfect. a lot guys. thanks so much for your work thank you thanks david my guests today have been david hopkins and david greenham of the maine arts commission Sarah Orange Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story, the portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There, above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island, and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists. Visit our galleries and independent bookstores and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Conversations from the Pointed Furs has begun its second year of broadcast, and we are grateful to the board, staff, volunteers, and members of WERU Community Radio who make the program possible. We are grateful as well to the editors and subscribers of Maine Monitor, an online aggregator of Maine News and investigative reporting, who are posting these interviews monthly in their Sunday edition, online at themainmonitor.org. If you have comments or suggestions, I urge you to contact us at info.pointedfurs at gmail.com so that we can continue these special encounters with creative people, our neighbors, whose work and imagination captures and communicates the essence of the wonderful community in which we live. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.